Jesus told his disciples in the book of Mark, chapter 16, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And for over 2,000 years, this has been the mission of the church. Go, preach, evangelize, disciple. For reasons hard to understand, the church has slowly found itself drifting away from this mission. I believe it's time for the church to turn away from the social environment and sounding board for personal preference it has created and get back to its roots. In this podcast, we're going to refocus and attempt to get back to what matters, the gospel. This is the Lost Mission Podcast. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Stephen Boyce and discuss the Textus Receptus. Now, if you've been following along with the podcast or the, the live stream at all, then you know that we are coming up to um, the portion of history where the King James Version has been translated. And as such, the Textus Receptus is very important. So Dr. Boyce and I discussed Erasmus, who was one of the um, sort of originators of the what would become known as the Textus Receptus. We talked about his Greek translation. We uh, talked about the Textus Receptus and a little bit about sort of various text types that exist surrounding uh, Bible translation. So we're going to get into that video here this evening. I hope you enjoy it. Here's myself and Dr. Stephen Boyce discussing the Textus Receptus. So I've got Dr. Stephen Boyce here with me um, tonight. We're going to have a little conversation about the Textus Receptus. And um, Dr. Boyce, I don't know if you have been keeping up with any of the videos that we've been putting out on the podcast or not. If not, that's perfectly fine. But um, anyhow, uh, going through a series discussing uh, sort of the history translation of the Bible. And just prior to the translation of the King James Version. So that's kind of where we're at. And I thought, man, I need to get somebody who has some expertise on this issue. And um, so I thought, man, there's got to be somebody out there, somebody who knows what's up, somebody who is somewhat accessible you know, and I, I keep seeing your name pop up. Um, I've seen you pop up on YouTube with Dr. White. I've seen you pop up on Facebook and different conversations. And then just through some of your posts and stuff. And I thought, man, I got to get a hold of this guy. And uh, anyhow, so I'm glad you uh, glad you took some time to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm usually not favorably invited to talk about the TR um, because I once was a TR onlyist and I am no longer a TR onlyist. So that crowd doesn't necessarily like me but i still enjoy having the conversation they just don't let me have it with them so <laughs> yeah right on and see i think that you're probably honestly a little bit further or let, let me just <laughs> you're a lot further down the road with the conversation than i am and um i am just now starting to find out that there is a group out there that is maybe not quite so positive when you uh say anything that uh, how do I even say this? Not anti-King James, but it's just not entirely 1,000% pro-King James, you know? And uh, so anyhow, um, yeah, I know I know that you've, you've been down this road. You've talked to some folks. And so anyhow, um, it's, <laughs> it, it makes for an interesting conversation, you know? Sure. Um, but, you know, before I get into the conversation, though, um, just to kind of give the audience a little bit about yourself. Now, as far as I'm concerned... Anybody who sees my content has likely seen yours. They know who you are, but just give a little bit about yourself. Tell the listeners who you are. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm Stephen Boyce. I'm here in South Carolina. 
working with a church planning ministry that started in Seattle known as City Light. Uh, City Light Seattle is its own church. We are launching a new church plant over here on this side in Asheville, North Carolina. Also, maybe you've heard of an apologist named Samuel Neeson. Uh, he runs his own channel as well. In fact, he's the one that hosted Dr. White and I on his channel. Right. He is starting a church plant in the country of Malaysia. So there's a city like Malaysia. We also have other partnering churches. But that's most of where my time is now. I just finished my PhD, um, turned in my dissertation at the end of the year of 2020. I uh, already received it back. Um, got a good, good to go on that. I do have to have it hardbound. I just got to pay 300 something dollars, but uh, other right. than that, I have that, and then I'll be finished with it. And it was concentrated on textual criticism as well as canonicity, which most of my work would have been more in the canon. Most of the work I, I did as projects, I chose canonical, um, and that's actually one of the most invited opportunities I'm given is to talk canon, which I love that subject sure, yeah. far more than textual criticism. People don't do well with textual criticism. They get mad uh, and they can't handle deep discussions and they don't like textual variances and it makes them uncomfortable and usually you end up turning into an argument. It's just like, it's never ended good. So, oh yeah, uh, yeah. but I'll talk about anything anybody wants to talk about. It's, it's fine. I, yeah, right fine. on. Um, you know, you talk about textual criticism and all that. I'll be honest with you. That is an area that still yet is just off of my radar, you know, and almost a little bit, I'm doing that on purpose because, um, I'm not the most skilled, not the most learned and I'm not, bro, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna pick that fight cause I'll probably lose, you know, so <laughs> I'd, I'd rather just stay away from it. But, uh, you know, um, you're talking about the, the church plant and all that. So you recently, you just moved back from Seattle. Is that right? Were you originally from Seattle? No, I'm actually here on this side of the country. I, I would take numerous trips to Seattle to help that church plant. Most right. of them actually moved out from the East Coast. A few of them are already out there on the West Coast. Um, but no, I've always been here. And that was kind of what started conversation to begin this church plant here is that a lot of the supporters of the church in Seattle are on this side of the country. Sure. And um, Asheville is a very needy city. And it's a lot like Seattle when it comes to the culture, not so much the metropolitan side of it, but the culture is very similar. And it's only about 45 minutes to 50 minutes from where I'm at now. So wow. it wasn't far and a group got together and prayed about it. And, and we all felt like that's where the Lord was leading us to go. Man, that, that really kind of just shocks me to, to hear you say <laughs> the culture is so similar in Seattle versus North Carolina. <laughs> and it shows how much, oh, how little I know. I mean, I wouldn't think the culture would be the same at all, you know, from North Carolina over into Seattle. I mean, what, what, am, what am I missing there? I'm sorry. I, I think that you got, you know, your, your, your Southern folks over here and then like your, your rock group from Seattle. Am I missing something there? Yeah. Inner Asheville is very different from the outside of Asheville. So right you go external, it's very churchy, Southern Baptist. The in, inside of it is, is very progressive. Cool. Um, more liberal leaning, a lot of um, homosexuality. Mm -hmm. is, it's one of the most predominant areas of that on the East Coast is in Asheville. Right. A lot of young generation like myself, yourself are moving out there. So very progressive in their thinking. So it, it is very similar in its cultural. Side. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it's a challenge. You know, I'm sure it's a challenge to, um, to kind of bridge that cultural divide um, because... I know for myself, 
being here in Oklahoma. Now, granted, there's still a very conservative base, even outside of the church group. You know, they're, they're pretty conservative. Um, but uh, to try to bridge that, that gap with those who don't fall strictly under or into some sort of Christianized or um, Bible belt, you know, believing folks, it's, 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 it's a challenge. Uh, but so I applaud your work. Um, I applaud what you guys are doing out there. God bless your efforts. And, um, you know, you'll, you guys will be in our prayers uh, going forward. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what God does through you guys in the very near future out there. We are uh, as well. We're excited to see what God will do. And what he's already doing is exciting enough, but right on, man, that's, what that's, in the future will be great. That's incredible. So, all right, well, I know your time's valuable and I'm not going to try to keep you all night long. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly interested in your work and what you've done and are doing through city light. Um, but, but definitely I think that I would say I'm interested in your work as a scholar. And so, like I said, when I was looking for somebody to talk to about this, you were one of the top guys that came to mind. And I, I feel like that really the questions I have are going to be pretty basic, pretty elementary. So, um, you know, just, just answer them. Like I'm asking something really smart and then you can laugh <laughs> later. All right. <laughs> but, um, so kind of the, the topic when, when we've been going through the discussion surrounding, um, the translation of scripture. Um, I'm in my podcast series. I'm just before the King James, like I said. So we're right around the time um, when, uh, you know, we were discussing guys like Martin Luther, William Tyndale, um, and Desiderius Erasmus. Mm -hmm. And it seems like through church history, there are certain guys whose names would really ring a bell. You bring up Martin Luther or Tyndale or John Calvin, and people are going to kind of latch hold of that. But if you mention a guy like Erasmus, for me anyway, like I hadn't even heard the name hmm. until just a few years ago, you know, um, and then I hear this name Desiderius Erasmus and I'm like, who in the world is this? And I feel like I could try to explain that, but I think you'd have a lot more to say on Erasmus than I would. So just to dive into this, who in the world are we talking about when we mentioned Desiderius Erasmus? Did you grow up Baptist? What did you grow up? Uh, Pentecostal holiness. Um, okay. Yeah, if yeah, Catholic, yeah. You would have heard of Death to Darius Erasmus more. He's kind of a hero, but yet he's an outsider too, because right. he's always a neutral guy. He he did enough to make his name known, but he kind of didn't like everything in the church, and the church kind of didn't like things about him, but they couldn't go without using his work, and he mm -hmm. couldn't go without their platform. So it's kind of a love-hate relationship between the both of them, but it, most people that grew up Catholic would have been familiar with some of the work that he did in the early 1500s. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so he was sort of um, not maybe an outsider when you talk about Catholicism, but uh, definitely not their favorite guy. Is that kind of how it comes down well, to it? He kind of had one foot in one foot out and Luther tried to persuade him to reform and he just wouldn't do it. Uh, mm -hmm. They had fundamental differences, which I'm sure we can talk about, but first of all, he, he was a Dutch reform uh, a dutch catholic mm -hmm. um he's fr he's known as being from rotterdam which is where he would have been he he lived all the way up to about 1536 he okay uh, there's debate about when he was born he made a couple of comments about his age and it would have placed him in a certain time some would say around 1466 uh but he lived a, a pretty decent life for that time frame uh very intelligent learned mm -hmm. numerous languages uh, later in life but as far as latin goes he he was top notch uh oh, i mean wow. he was fantastic in the latin language uh, he learned greek a little bit later in life but he became 
really a, a catalyst for, for what usage of Greek is today. What I mean by that is most students that go to seminary, like when I did mm -hmm. my Greek classes, we learn Erasmian Greek. So oh, wow. pronunciations of letters. Sometimes you'll hear people argue about it today. Like, is it Omicron or Omicron? Is it Iota or Iota? And so when you go back to the Erasmian side of it, that, that's the form I use. It's Iota and Omicron. Um, so he is credited to even pronunciations of wow. the Greek language itself. Um, he was a humanist, yep. uh, which is different from the humanists today. In fact, he was known as the crowning glory of the Christian humanists. Uh, that was a phrase given unto him. But he was definitely around that time of the Reformation. He agreed with Luther on certain abuses in the church. Uh, Luther tried to sway him out of it. Luther was fond of him at times, and then he hated him at times. Just like the Catholic Church was fond of him at times, hated him at times. Luther seems like when you when you uh, talk about Luther, that he seems like there's a lot of folks who had that sort of relationship with Luther. That he was a obviously an incredible man, but I always tell people like Martin Luther was a jerk. You know, um, sure. he yeah he had his moments when you're just like Luther, cool out, man. You know, um, I don't know if he was the same type of relationship with Erasmus or. Am I right or wrong? Uh, he was that way with everybody. I mean, <laughs> okay. he, he had a falling out with Calvin for a little bit. Uh, in fact, when I go to bed at night, sometimes I read uh, Calvin's personal letters. He has a couple of them addressed to Luther, and he had this high respect for Luther. He called him a father. He called him mm -hmm. father. Um, but when they got on the subject of uh, the Eucharist and transubstantiation, uh, they didn't like each other anymore. And then they'd go back to being friends again. Sure. But then they didn't like each other again. So it was kind of weird in their relationship. Um, you have the same problem. Luther and, and really Erasmus had a debate that went on for a while. Uh, they wrote books against each other. You had Luther writing the bondage of the will. And you have Erasmus writing the freedom sure. of the will. All about election, sovereign election, or the free will of man. That's what the whole entire thing was about. Um, and, and really Erasmus wrote numerous books. That's the ones he's known for but he, he wrote numerous books he wrote a book called the Civ civility in children mm -hmm. which was about how to educate children wow. it was phenomenal it was, it was used by the church for years on child development he also wrote something called the foundations of the abundant style and it was a bestseller widely used for teaching how to rewrite pre-existing text how to format how to write a certain format um, and how to look at pre-existing text and duplicate and transmit it was, it was a teaching guide on transmission. So he was an intelligent man, yeah, very yeah, intelligent, no and, and no doubt he was given the proper platform to do things. He was too smart for himself sometimes, and sure. he let his zeal outdo his brains, and it caused a lot of mistakes. Uh, you know, I think that uh, that's, <laughs> I don't think that's a problem that, that died out with Erasmus or with <laughs> any human being for that matter. You see people sometimes that they, they have a tendency to do that. They just get so intelligent, so smart, become so educated until after a while, you just got to throw your hands up. What do we, you know, what do we do with that, with that person? You know, um, you, uh, you, you made comment earlier and I was actually going to include that in my questioning that Erasmus was a humanist. Now, when I think of humanism, that puts a bad taste in my mouth. You know, I, I think of, of basically humanism being everything that Christianity is not, um, how, well, saying that Erasmus is a humanist, kind of dive down into that a little bit. How how does that function in his day and age? And how would that look different than 
sort of what we think of humanism is today. Yeah, Renaissance period. Now words change. Sure. Um, and <clears throat> meanings change, and that's why it's important. Uh, and you're right up to the King James version. That is why it is important to understand translations need to be revised and updated because words right. do change. Sure. Here's a perfect example. Um, in the discussion of humanism at, today, like you said, it rejects the idea of, of God or a supernatural mm -hmm. being and pretty much makes humans God. Right. Um, they have no belief in anything to do with the spiritual, the supernatural, afterlife. They focus on self-seeking happiness. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. That's what a humanist is today. Somebody who wants to find their inner self and go after life to their liking, their rules, and their criteria. That's not what a humanist was at the time of Erasmus. A humanist was somebody who studied the original languages of text, ancient texts, modern, uh, studied literature, history, philosophy. In fact, Erasmus was considered a philosopher sure. in his time. So a humanist is somebody who went back to the original language they studied languages, they studied literature, they studied history, they studied philosophy. That was a humanist in the time of Erasmus. So it should not be confused with modern day humanism. So if we were to, to try to put a different label on Erasmus, which I'm not saying try to change the history at all. I mean, he, he was what he was. Um, but would it be a little bit more fair to the conversation now to almost refer to him as almost a linguist, somebody that could understand languages or am I, am I off a little bit there? Well, that'd be accurate. Uh, he would, I would call him a textual critic. He made choices sure. between manuscripts. It was though very minimal. Um, he made choices. He, he made decisions. He was a translator. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a philosopher. He was sure. a historian. I mean, he was an educator. Um, he, he had a lot of labels that we could use modern terminology today, but because look, I mean, when you get the description of your name, you're known as the crowning glory of the Christian humanists. It's hard to like, just take that away from him. Cause that yeah. was probably one of the most complimented titles he was given. But sure. again, because language changed, you almost want to always clarify ahead of time. Well, that's not the humanist of today. It's, and then you fill it in. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's that's why I think you it wouldn't do justice to a guy like Desiderius Erasmus to, like you say, take that title away from him. He's like, no, I, I earned this, you know. Um, you don't you don't want to strip that from him. So I, I, yeah, I get what you're saying there. Um, when we talk about his Greek New Testament, though, um, this is honestly where I think that it becomes a maybe greater interest to me, but also where the confusion I think starts to lie. So we know that he translated a version or several versions um, or editions maybe of the Greek New Testament. But what was the point in that? Why did he originally decide to undertake this endeavor? I don't think that Erasmus just woke up one day and was like, you know what, I got a great idea. You know, I'm going to translate the Greek. You know, what, what prompted him? Well, what he did is his original text was in 1516, and it's known as a diglot. Now, a diglot is having one language on one side. So if you have like Matthew chapter one and you have the another language on the other side and that's Matthew chapter one as well, Greek and Latin were his or Latin and Greek. Um, and really Erasmus was already doing a work in the Latin text before the Greek. Okay. Um, the Greek was kind of an afterthought. And I know that people differ on that, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, is his work and his main interest in what's known as the 
TR. Remember, we'll talk about this later, but sure. the TR came later. That's not what Erasmus, if you'd have told Erasmus your TR edition, that he'd be like, what, what are you talking about? Sure. Um, that came way after he was alive. Um, he was publishing the first ever Greek text. He was not the first one to print a published Greek text. We'll talk about that in a second. He was the first to get one published. But in that work, his primary focus was on the Latin. Now, what he had done is he had recognized Jerome's text and that Jerome's text was not perfect. Mm -hmm. Go figure. A translation was not perfect. <laughs> now, that was an insult to the Catholic Church because sure. they believed for over 1,100 years that the Vulgate was the inerrant, infallible, inspired, perfect, preserved word of God as much as a lot of the King James only movement does about the King James version. Yeah, Except maybe more so, right? Very much so because it's 1,100 years and the King yeah. James is only 400 years. So you're talking about a lot more time going by. In fact, let me, I've got a, um, I'm going to pull up a quote from Erasmus to give you yeah. an idea of why he did what he did. And he was excited about this task, by the way. This was like a closet secret that he kept for a long time and then exposed it. All right. So, so he says, my mind is so excited at the thought of amending Jerome's text with notes that I seem to myself inspired by some God. I have already almost finished amending him by collating a large number of ancient manuscripts, which by the way, we don't know what they are. Sure. We don't know if they were in Greek. We don't know if they were in Latin. We don't know if they were in Syriac, Coptic. He didn't really clarify all of them except for a few. Uh, we know in the Greek side, he was working with about seven to 12 manuscripts, uh, the earliest no later than really the 12th century. Mm -hmm. But he says uh, a large number of ancient manuscripts. Now, keep in mind, Erasmus did have ancient training or training in ancient languages as well as in their data previously before this work. He had been collecting data for years and years and years. He was no dummy. He was no fool. Sure. What was going on? But he did have one single style of text that, that was around him, specifically in Latin and in Greek. But he said, I am, I am doing at an enormous personal expense. Now, that personal expense could have been referring not only to his financial, but, but to his reputation. Mm -hmm. To challenge Jerome's Vulgate, which was the standard for 1,100 years, and say, I'm going to amend it and leave notes at where Jerome is wrong or corrections or suggested translational differences is to pretty much say God's word's got problems and I'm going to fix it. The same thing that would happen in modern day today if you're facing somebody who believes the King James is entirely perfect without error. Mm -hmm. And so he was challenging the, the, the theme. But now look, here's the thing. Jerome translated the Vulgate from the Greek. So of course, you need to have the Greek on the other side over here to show that you're, as if Jerome didn't, but to show that you're <laughs> translating from the Greek as well. But he had worked on his Latin far before the Greek. The Greek was an afterthought. It was a secondary thing. In fact, he was a little bit insulted that everybody was talking about his Greek text. The point was not about his Greek. He wanted people to think he did a better job than, than Jerome. And uh, people weren't focusing on that. They were mad about his Greek text. Wow. So, so when he first... Um decides to do his Greek translation. He wasn't really going for the Greek. He was actually kind of gunning for the Latin. That's what he just put the Greek in there. Is that kind of, am I getting that right? His primary focus was the Latin text. His, okay. his, his purpose of having the Greek 
was to involve and demonstrate that his Latin choices of translation reflected the original language of the New Testament. Remember, there's a difference between translation and transmission. If you're taking manuscripts of the Greek and putting a text together in Greek, that's a transmission. Taking it and translating it into Latin, that's the translation side. So he's showing you, I've transmitted the original language here, and I've accurately translated it here. So the focus was the Latin, but the Greek was his evidence for rightly translating it the way he did. Huh. Now that that's I'm, that's interesting. I've never heard that about um, Erasmus at all. Uh, I I guess I was just under the impression that there would have been some hierarchical event or some person that says Erasmus translate this, and I couldn't find out who it was. But maybe that's what what you're saying. There wasn't a somebody. He was trying to improve on the Vulgate. Is that kind of what his goal was? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what he said. I mean, those are his words. He said he was excited at the thought of amending Jerome's text. Wow, that um, is those incredible. Are his words. And, How did and the I church take to that? Uh, not well. Um, I didn't think so. <laughs> he was, but, but again, he was smart. They, they, they actually banned his work later. So mm-hmm. keep that in mind. Now, right. Luther liked his work. Okay, so so with Erasmus, and when we talk about the various editions that he produced, um, how many how many did he actually produce? Yeah, he produced five total by the time he passed away. He did a fifteen sixteen, which was his first edition, a fifteen nineteen, a fifteen twenty two, fifteen twenty seven, and fifteen thirty six. And again, his first edition on the Greek side of things was rushed. Mm-hmm. And, and there's actually a reason for that. And, and perhaps I should give a little bit of background on that sure. by itself. So there was a, his text was the first ever published Greek New Testament. It was not the first ever printed. There was another work called the Complutensian Polyglot, right. which was headed up by Cardinal Jimenez. Now he knew of this work and they had completed the New Testament. It was a multi-volume, multi-translation work. It was completed by 1514, but it was only the New Testament. And now they were very meticulous. They wanted everything to be just right. They, they did revision of, amongst themselves. They were editing constantly. And then the committee decided we want not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament. So they paused their work and completed the New Testament, left it uh, in a cellar. And then they continued into the Old Testament side of the work. And Cardinal Jimenez headed up this whole thing and honestly if there is a and and it's often neglected in the tr discussion about well texas receptus if there was a text that was really good that is one of the better out of erasmus and stephanus and beza the polyglot and the competition polyglot greek section is probably one of the better ones really and they were very meticulous they were very careful what they did they didn't finish the polyglot until 1520 and didn't get to really put it in circulation until 1522. Erasmus quickly rushed to get his done. And again, he was kind of an intelligent guy, but his zeal always moved faster than his intelligence. But he was able to accomplish something. It's like, well, wait a minute. How can I get a new work done and published? Remember, they had to have you know licensings to do this. They had to have sure. approval papacy to do this so what better way to do it than to designate your work to pope leo the 10th 
And that's exactly what he did. He dedicated his first edition in the 1516 to Pope Leo. This is what Erasmus did? Yeah, it was was a designated gift to the Pope. And hey, when you designate a work to the Pope, you're going to get approval and publishing a whole lot quicker and royalties faster that way. And so he got it through. He got it um, published. And he was the first ever he was after the polyglot in completion, but when it came to publishing it, he beat him to the punch. Really? Uh, so yes. So mm-hmm. it's 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 safe to say then that politics, money, all those things kind of were were factors. Which I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sound overly negative there. Politics and money are are factors in a lot of things. Let's just face it; it's just the way things go. Um, with Erasmus and the rush to publish his first translation as he was competing with the, the, the polyglot. Um, and that's why he attached the, the Pope's name to it because he basically wanted to be hey first come first serve. Is that kind of what he was going for? Yeah, and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. His, okay. His, his first edition was atrocious in right. the Greek side. He had numerous years to put together the Latin. The Greek was terrible. Right. Um, he actually he compiled it. Is it is, now tell me whether this is true or not. This is what I've heard um, that the latter final verses of Revelation, he compiled from a Latin commentary and translated like backwards, translated those into Greek. Is that is there truth to that or is that still another one of those sort of things you hear? He had one copy of Revelation and it was a text and commentary in and of itself in the mm-hmm. Greek section. He didn't have the final leaf, so he had to back translate from Latin, which he's pretty incredible at doing. And I know that there's CR guys out there denying this ever happened. This is what the man said happened. I mean, he he told them, he he later talked about how he came up with these readings. The other TR people that are just driven by this would say, well, he was familiar with the endings because he was familiar with other Greek texts. That's Mm -hmm. fine. That's probably true. That's probably why he got most of the words right. Right. But he created numerous readings and differences in those last few verses, last 10, 12 verses there, on the basis of the fact that he back translated it from the Latin into Greek, which is impressive sure, in of itself. Or maybe perhaps he went from memory. One of the biggest ones he did that in was in the end there of Revelation. It talks about the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And all Greek texts that have survived, it no matter if it's Byzantine or not, all of them say Tree of Life. Uh, and he has Book of Life there. Uh, Ligna and Libra, I think, are the difference in, in the Latin. So it's not much different. Um, uh, you know, Biblu and Zulu is the difference in Greek. Zulu is tree. Uh, mm-hmm. Biblu is, is the uh, book. It would be slightly different in Greek. In Latin, not as much. There were some Latin copies that had that reading, but he obviously used that one and put it into Greek, which is not supported to this day by any Greek manuscript of that kind of reading there at the end. So he did rush. But again, you have to remember this about the book of Revelation. Most of the reformers and early parts of that time period like Erasmus did not care about the book of Revelation. (laughs) This is just a reality we have to deal with. He even stated that what he did in the book of Revelation, he would have never done in the Gospels. Really? That shows you how much they did not care. So when you say that, when you say they didn't care about translation, just just so that I'm, you know, I, 
to, to clarify here. When you say they didn't care, are you saying that you're not saying they didn't believe that Revelation wasn't inspired, but you're saying that they really would rather have devoted their time and efforts and attention to, say, the Gospels? Some of them would have disputed it still. I think Luther would have ultimately rejected the book of Revelation in some really? ways. Uh, yeah, oh, certainly. He did not accept numerous books in the canon. Um, Luther dismissed Esther um, wow. uh, completely. So did Calvin, for that matter. Um, oh, that's interesting. They didn't agree with the book of Esther. I mean, Luther was pretty adamant against James. He calmed down with a little bit later. Um, I, I've heard he, some, he some like, pushback on James before, but I mean, I, I didn't know how much truth there was to a lot of that. Um, and honestly, I... I could see why there would be pushback on James. Well, he also um, pushed back. He also pushed back on Hebrews. He that's he surprising. His his philosophy was if it didn't preach Christ, it wasn't canon. Of course, I don't know how in the world he got that out of Hebrews. Yeah, right. Uh, but uh, so yeah, I mean, these guys were not perfect. Um, they did not accept everything that we would see as canonical at times. The Book of Revelation was they just didn't want it. I mean, sure. think about it. You know, monsters coming out of the sea with oh yeah. Multiple I mean, like, who wants that in their in their Bible? And they just flat out didn't understand it. And they even said that. I mean, they, they didn't hide that. They well, that's we <laughs> really no, what, what's changed today, right? I mean, people still debate and, and wonder and discuss and argue over Revelation, you know? I mean, I think COVID has shown us that people really just don't understand Revelation, right? Well, uh, yeah. Well, say, there's some people that think they understand Revelation, but they don't understand. <laughs> good, good, good point. That's right. Um, in apocalyptic literature from the first century and if they did they would really quickly change their eschatological positions well i think most people get their eschatology from youtube and tim LaHaye myself oh, but yeah. you know <laughs> um all right so so we've talked quite a bit about um erasmus and his greek translation and i understand that there is a difference with um when you say the Texas Receptus and Erasmus in his work, but to kind of just speak a little bit more on the, the TR, explain to us when we say Texas Receptus, TR, uh, for people kind of like myself that are learning this as we go, and definitely those that have never even heard these terms, what in the world are we talking about when we say that? Yeah, it's it's a term that was coined in the, in the 1600s. Uh, in fact, there was a nephew and an uncle, and their last name was Elzevir. They started a text edition in 1624 that was pretty much reflecting the 1550 Stephanus. Uh, but by 1633, they had published um, a work in there and in the preface of the Latin, in Latin it read uh, the, the, the text received by all. Mm -hmm. So it was the reader now has the text that has been received by everybody. That was the concept that they were putting out. It was more of a selling publicity thing. Sure. It wasn't because every single continent of known humanity that had access to scripture had accepted that text. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, they were mostly using Stephanus, which by the way, out of all the different Textus Recepti editions, people need to recognize this. There's over 30 editions mm -hmm. and they don't all read the same. None right. of five editions of Erasmus read the same. None of the four editions of Stephanus read the same. And Bayes' editions rapidly changed from the earliest stage to the end of the stage, especially the book of Revelation. There was numerous adjustments made by these men all the way to the time of their death. And then even after that, you have the Elsevier editions. Like I said, mm -hmm. 1624 started it. 1633 
popularized the received text terminology. And then in the early 1700s, you have Mills who actually used an apparatus. He had over 80 manuscripts. Wow. And he put together a text and, and actually footnoted differences in over 50,000 textual variances he noted between the 80 manuscripts or so that he had. So that would be considered a Texas Receptus edition as well if you're going to continue to label that all the way up to the time of Scrivener in the 1800s. Scrivener's text, when most people are using a Texas Receptus today, mm-hmm. they're using Scrivener's text. Really? And it's not reflective. It's very close, very close to Bayes' 1598 edition, which would have been the predominant one that the King James translators use. But Stephanus was, I mean, just go Google the 1550 Stephanus edition. It is beautifully done. Mm-hmm. It is well put together. Remember, Stephanus was definitely a scribe. He sure. became Calvin's scribe in Geneva when he sought refuge there. Oh, really? His 1551 edition is very, very important, and most people benefit from it in English Bible today, and they don't know it. If you enjoy the word, or if you enjoy a preacher that says, turn with me to John 3.16, you wouldn't have a John 3, you'd have a John 3, but not a 3.16 without Stephanus. Stephanus invented the verse division. Uh, Now, a, a, a cardinal named Stevens, about 100 years before him, created chapter division. So mm-hmm. Stevens created a chapter division, Stephanus later, which is also, his name is Stevens as well, uh, 100, almost 100 years later, created verse division. And that became the standard from now on. So if you're in John chapter 3 and in verse 16, you can thank Stephanus for the 16, which is always hilarious to me. You have these numerology guys out there <laughs> that sit there and say, John 666. That's that falling away passage because it's 666. It's like, oh, come on, man. The original yeah. manuscripts had no verse and chapter division. You've lost your mind. Right. Uh, I, I, yeah. I knew there was um, I knew there was some some sort of uh, like a progression along through several years to get to the chapter verse format um, that we, we had oh, gotten yeah. to. And I, I think that's one of those kind of things that people just don't really they don't really think about a whole lot. You know, they just feel like that you know, that God just wrote down out of heaven and handed us a Bible one day with all 66 books and, and not the Apocrypha and uh, chapter and verse divisions were just there and just boom, here, enjoy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite incredible to look at history and how the word of God was passed down and that sure. it wasn't always pretty. No more, than the, no more than if you look at the lineage of Jesus Christ and how he mm-hmm. came into the world, um, it wasn't a pretty bloodline. There's a lot right. of problems in and yet God used it and God used natural means to preserve his supernatural word it's it's an incredible reality and when you look at these discussions Uh these men it needs to be understood that anybody listening these men did not believe they were doing a perfect work they never said they were doing a in fact they admitted their flaws that is why there were so many additions erasmus was updating his text until he died because he needed to improve it it was not complete. So the, the problem is, is three and 400 years after these men, people have come along and, and created theories mm-hmm. and, and discussions about them that they didn't believe about themselves. Right. Stephanus right. was a fine, fine scribe. And he did a wonderful work in the 1500s. In fact, if I was going to be a TR guy, I'd be Stephanus more than I would anybody else. Well, that, I was getting ready to actually ask you that. Um, when we hear, it seems like we hear 
in regards to translation so many times, King James, which I just want to you know, make note of. I'm an incredible fan of King James. Grew up with it, love it, still read it to this day. It's fantastic. Um, but we hear King James, we hear Texas Receptus, and we hear Erasmus. Now, it seems like from, from some of what you're telling me here tonight that um, Erasmus may not have been so closely connected to the King James through the TR as maybe I've been led to believe. Um, seems he's a little bit further down down the road as far as, as how closely related he is to the text. Erasmus's work was probably used the least amount in the King mm-hmm. James translation. You say Stephanus but- was probably used the most, right? No, uh, Beza would have been. Oh, Beza's, sorry, Beza. 15, Beza's 1598 would have been the most used. Stephanus's 1550 would have been also used. In fact, Scrivener has published a work where the King James translators went with Stephanus over Beza in places. In fact, I've done my own translation of that section, and I've actually taken what he has written and actually put it in modern English and has changed format. In fact, um, Mark Ward mm-hmm. has, an, he put it on his website. He had uh, me finish it. Timothy Berg, who's actually out in Oklahoma, uh, he actually helped me edit it and get it done as well. So there are differences. And this is what needs to be understood. The King James translators were not sitting there with a single text mm-hmm. and just translating from top to bottom. They had multiple editions. They had the editions of Beza. They mm-hmm. had the editions of Stephanus, and they had Erasmus. Erasmus was used the least. They also had ancient translations with them too. They had the Latin, they had the Vulgate. Um, They referenced numerous places. In fact, the King James translators were often swayed in the Old Testament by Latin phrasing. Let me give you a perfect example, one that we all know. How many people have read the book of Isaiah and get to the section where we talk about the name Lucifer? (laughs) Lucifer did not come from the Hebrew. Right. It's not a proper name in the Hebrew, but in the Latin, it's Lucifer, and mm-hmm. they transliterated it and put a Latin term into the English text because the King James translators were tremendous Latin scholars. The, the, the King James sure, translators yeah. were better at Latin than any other language, more than many of new multiple languages. They were excellent. In fact, most of the meetings in the King James translation committees, they took notes in Latin. I mean, these guys were fascinated by the line. That became the predominant language of their time. Of course, they were. So, so, they so when 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 you when you mentioned that about um, um, Lucifer actually being translated from the Latin, then um, I guess it, for me it begs the question then because I've always heard the name Lucifer. So many of us have heard that. What would have been the Hebrew equivalent? <laughs> the the word that would have been used there? I mean, where 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 do we come from? Where do we go with that? Are you, are you trying to get me in trouble? <laughs> no, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble. So you, you get a free pass. Because the NIV took a lot of hit for this because they, they put the morning star or, okay. or day star. And the rightful translation is day star. I mean, or really, it, it could even be translated in the idea of Venus, the planet. I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's that concept. Now, the, the problem is, is, is you have to deal with this reality. Are there faulty names of the devil, which I believe it is referring to him there, that he uses the same names that God has in other places? Can there be a true and a faulty with the same name? Of course. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And when, look, look at the New Testament. 
the 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 antichrist that's mm-hmm. coming is going to make himself out to be god right he's going to impersonate the messiah he's right, going to do right. miracles and works just like jesus did but he's not jesus so just because somebody has the same name who mm-hmm. is not god but has that name of god does not mean because jesus is called the morning star later in the book of revelation everybody freaks out it's like well just calm down calm down there's true and false of just about anything Sure. Satan impersonates anything that's true about God. That's not right. new. So, see, I, I would love to translation is 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 the way it reads in a lot of modern translations. I, I, and we don't have time to, but I would love to pick your brain on um, Satan throughout the Book of Job. Um, yes. Yeah, we we just don't have time. We don't have time for that um, because it's just it's incredibly interesting to me. But um, so, all right. Um, in re, in regards to uh, the TR, so you've talked a little bit about how it would have functioned in the, the development translation of the KJV. And it's good to know that there was such sort of a body of, of work and of manuscripts available. I mean, I know there was six, six companies, 50 translators, give or take. And, uh, it's, and, and they had a volume, a body of, of work that they were able to go through. In regards to modern translation, though, is the TR still being used? Um, have we kind of just moved on when we speak of the ESV, NASB, even the NKJV. Um, I mean, where, where, and how does it fit into modern translation? Well, let, let me back up a little bit on that because, as I mentioned, the, the TR today is not what the King James translation. Sure, right. Exactly. We're using Scrivener when you mm-hmm. use TR. Scrivener put together a Greek text on the basis of what the King James translators chose in the time process of the 1611 in which they were translating. For example, if they chose, if, if Stephanus and Beza differed on a reading and the translators went with Beza, mm-hmm. Scrivener put the reading of Beza. If they went with Stephanus, they would put the reading, he would put the reading of Stephanus. So his text was to match and duplicate that which the King James translator. So technically the King James translators also chose your Greek text if you use Scrivener's edition because Scrivener's edition was not meant. And by the way, Scrivener does not believe in some of the verses that he put in there. He disagreed with some of the readings in the TR, but he was merely trying to take a Greek text and an English translation that were parallel and work together. Mm-hmm. And so he, the TR today is biased, the King James, and it's still, in my opinion, and I can show in places where they do not accurately translate wording from script scripture's text wrongly transmitted sections I actually pointed this out in my research that there was a place that he marked was beza and it wasn't oh, really? um, and so he, he actually is different in that spot from the king james version so wow. he didn't even perfectly do what he was trying to do nor did he admit that he read the, read the preface of scripture he did, he did not believe he was doing something perfect that others believe he was I have a professor in my undergrad who says Scrivener got it right. Well, Scrivener said he didn't. So I'm going to go with Scrivener on this one (laughs) uh, against modern day thinking on it. That's wishful. Um, Erasmus didn't believe he got it perfect. Beza did not believe he got it perfect. Stephanus didn't. The King James translators didn't believe they got it perfect. I don't think anybody, any single translator or translating committee or group feels like they got it perfect. It would seem kind of pretentious, right? To to say, oh, we got it perfect. Well, they change things over and over. I mean, I could send you a list when we're done of differences between the 1769 Blaney edition of the King James versus the 1611. 
they made massive changes. And the people say, oh no, it's just spelling and spelling. No, they 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 made some different changes. The right, difference right. between the son of God and removing son of God, the difference between Jeremiah sitting down or not sitting down. I mean, there, there's mm-hmm. there's differences in there. It's not always minor. Yeah. Most are. Yeah. Um, and I, I know we're starting to run low on time, so I'm gonna try to move through these last few questions as quickly as I as can. As far as modern English versions go. Nobody takes, and, and this is not a slam on TR people, nobody no, in modern scholarship takes the TR serious as the really? best edition. Oh, no, no. Uh, the, the New King James put together an update for the purpose with most of the New King James translators were critical text people or mm-hmm. majority text positions. In fact, um, the executive editor of... Uh, Dr. Farstad was the executive editor of the New King James, and he is also the editor of the Hodges and Farstad majority text. So that's why if you go to a, a New King James, I had an edition laying around somewhere over here. If you go to the footnote, they leave majority text readings where it differs from the TR and the critical text because most of the executive editors were majority text position, but they were not all TR, nor were they in favor of the TR readings in places. Really? Um, Really, the only modern translation as of recent that used the TR was the modern English version. Um, some of the TR crowd really like it because it's not Elizabethan English, mm-hmm. but it's really not a good translation. And well, isn't I, the modern English translation? It's is it even still in print, or am I mixing that up with another one? I thought there was one that they had taken out of print. Nobody, nobody. Here's the problem with translating a modern English version from the TR. The King James only crowd will not buy it because mm-hmm. they think the King James is sufficient. Sure. The modern English speaking people that want a modern translation are not going to get a, a translation from the TR because they believe they're getting it from a secondary text. So right. when you do a translation with the TR and a modern English, you're setting yourself up to fail sure. because your own crowd that holds your text position doesn't want a new translation. And the people that do want new translations don't want the text you're using. You're in a lose-lose situation. Right. Um, I, I know that some of my TR friends find it very helpful, and that's fine. I mean, that's that's great. Sure. There's there's places, for example, like I, I just I did a, a a word-for-word study all through First Corinthians when it came out. Uh, one of the things, like where it says um, "carnal" or "fleshly," mm-hmm. they translate it "worldly." That that's that's a terrible translation. Um, so there's places in there where they just did not do a good job. Um, most translators today in modern times will not translate from the Texas Receptus. It is, in my opinion, and I get shot at all the time saying this, it is an inferior text to what we have in modern textual criticism. Wow. I I think that we could probably go on and on with that, but I think it does kind of maybe segue into these last couple of questions a little bit. Um, (laughs) I'm not, because me still being a student and, and trying to study and look into some of this, I really can't make an informed opinion like yourself. Um, but when, when we talk about these different um, manuscripts and, and evidences and things that exist, I've heard basically you have two, maybe three major um, text types that exist, right? Uh, the Byzantine text, which is from which the TR is derived, if I understand correctly, then the Alexandrian that are much older, just discovered a lot later. So can you talk a little bit about the differences there? What's the difference between Alexandrian and Byzantine? Is one corrupt or the other? Um, just kind of talk about those a little bit. Sure. Yeah, that's fun. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so the misconception is that the TR is Byzantine. 
the TR is predominantly Byzantine, but the TR is unique to itself sure. in a lot of places that are not in the Byzantine. Um, people say all the time, well, the majority texts and, and, and the majority of manuscripts, yes, but there are readings in the TR that are not in the Byzantine or any Greek tradition at all. Um, for example, 1 John 5, 7 is not a majority text reading. Most Byzantine manuscripts do not have 1 John 5, 7. That's wow. a fact. Most Byzantine manuscripts do not have Acts 8, 37. Oh, wow. Most Byzantine manuscripts are lacking phrases in the book of Revelation that Erasmus put in or Beza switched or, or some sort of translational difference. The, the Byzantine readings are not identical to the TR, but there are many Byzantine readings reflected in the TR. For example, there's different Byzantine. There's older Byzantine and there's newer Byzantine. When the newer Byzantine, like for example, the oldest Byzantine manuscript is Alexandrinus, 5th mm -hmm. century. Alexandrinus does not have the story of the woman caught in adultery. Right. In, right. in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. However, most Byzantine manuscripts do, but the oldest manuscript in the Byzantine family does not. And so th this needs to be understood that, that there is no, and, and, and I, I was totally wrong about this growing up too, there is no perfect stream of manuscripts that just continued on throughout the ages. There are no two Byzantine manuscripts today that read identical to each other. Mm -hmm. No two manuscripts side by side are perfectly aligned. It doesn't matter. Right. The, the closest family that did that is family 35. And they're much later, but they were controlled transmissions within one group, copying and copying, copying. When you say that, much later, um, how, how much like, like how late are we talking there? Family 35 was in, to, I believe it's the 12th. It's been a while. I, most of my studies okay. are family 13, family one. I believe they're 13th, 12th, 13th, 14th century. Okay. Okay. Um, family 35 is, is, is an interesting perspective, but I will tell you this. It is, it is phenomenal what the scribes are able to do. So there's pros and cons to this. Mm -hmm. If you're going to use a transmission that's controlled, that's great. But the problem is, is if you're controlling a transmission, you're controlling changes and you're making it what you want. Sure, right. But so the good news about the, the, the wonderful news about the New Testament as a whole is it spread so far into the world that nobody could accuse it of being controlled. Mm-hmm. So if we have a controlled transmission, we're in the same exact boat. We're in the same exact boat that the Quran is in. Right, exactly. Now, by the way, most of them are early 12th century. Um, I, I just went back and looked at, at it. And I, I, was, I, I was pretty close. I was in the right time frame. Most of those uh, from family 35? Family 35. Uh, the group is pretty much early 12th century. Okay. Again, um, there are interesting readings in family 35 that are unique to itself that mm -hmm. are separate um mostly luke's gospel uh, there's quite a few members in this family it's a large family i think there's well over 200 manuscripts that oh wow <laughs> family so uh it, it's 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 a big but again most of them are much 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 later mm -hmm. um but when you talk about the byzantine manuscripts there are differences. For example, uh, Family 13 places the story of the woman caught in adultery, not in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, but in Luke's gospel right before the triumphal entry. 
That's in a Byzantine manuscript. Wow. But when people start talking about manuscripts and like, well, this the God preserved his word through the Byzantine manuscripts, which weren't. Right. <laughs> they're, they're not identical. Are they very close in most places? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But they're not identical. So, so that's where a lot of the modern TR onlyism goes to the fact that God used the King James translators to pick the right readings that were kept pure through all ages and that Scrivener represented that in his Greek text. It's easier just to conclude somebody got it perfect in history and we don't have to deal with the problems that got it to that. Sure. And that's typically what ends up happening. But the Alexandrian text, um, and, and again, text type is actually a less common word in textual criticism and scholarship today. There's really not that, that usage is almost gone. It used to be broke down into four groups. You had the Byzantine, you had the Alexandrian, you had the Western texts, which were mm-hmm. predominantly influenced by Latin. Um, a, a perfect example of a Western reading type of text is Codex D, yeah. uh, which was named after Beza. Um, he actually had access to this manuscript. It was It's grossly inaccurate, <laughs> but it's Western, <laughs> very influenced by the Latin. There's also a Caesarean style of reading that starts showing up pretty much when um, in different manuscripts that are sometimes Byzantine and then they have these interesting readings that go out. Origen started his work down into Caesarea and he started quoting scripture a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gave that Caesarean. But the problem is, is people will say, well, the Alexandrian manuscripts weren't found till later. The papyri or what are we talking about, Aleph or B. Right. Here's, here's the problem with that as well. We talked about Codex Alexandrinus a minute ago. I said it's as old as Byzantine. It's old as Byzantine in the Gospels, but the rest of the manuscript is not Byzantine. The epistles are actually Alexandrian. And really? Yes, it is kind of wow. a blend. It's Byzantine, Alexandrian. Um, the same thing is true in, in other manuscripts as well. And, and so when you look at the church fathers, most of my research and my dissertation was looking at the early fathers, whether it was uh, going through First Clement, uh, Epistle of Barnabas, mm-hmm. or the Didache. There's times where they're quoting a critical edition today, which would have been mostly based out of some of the Alexandrian readings. And sometimes they're quoting a Byzantine reading. So it's not like they just showed up for the first time out of nowhere. Sure. Uh, many of the early church father citations are blended. They have the same problem we have today, different streams of readings. So there are different readings. Like I said, they're, they're not really called text types. The only one that can really be technically a text type anymore in modern scholarship would be the Byzantine. But you do have this idea of streamed readings of Alexandrian, which is more Egyptian, uh, mm-hmm. the Western, the Caesarean, and the Byzantine. That's pretty much the four categories they would put it in. So when, when we talk about Alexandria, <clears throat> this is just another, it sounds conspiracy theory to me, and um, I just wanted to, to address it. I'm positive you've heard it before. If you've listened to Sam Gipp at all, then you've, you've heard this, right? <laughs> um, so uh, the fact that, or not not the fact, the idea that the Alexandrian manuscripts are are corrupted because they came up out of Egypt, and you know they, they try to do away with the deity of Christ, et cetera, et cetera, just... For for those that are watching, and for myself, man, just debunk that theory. Here's your chance. Have at it. I want to. I want to hear it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, 
I wouldn't take much weight with anything Sam Gipp says. He was right. Peter Ruckman's right hand man, and if you want to follow Ruckmanism, you can follow Sam Gipp. Um, so when it comes to corruption, that's mm-hmm. a broad term. Yes, it is. All manuscripts are corrupt because all of them have mistakes. All of them have transmission transmission mistakes. All of them are missing lines. All of them have imperfect scribes. Mm-hmm. All of them. Again, there are no two Greek manuscripts that read identically. And every manuscript has corruption in it. The question of corruption that Sam Gibbs talking about is intentional changes mm-hmm. to ruin the text, similar to what Marcion did early on in the church. That's what he's talking about. But somebody remind me who was in Alexandria defending the deity of Christ. He was a bishop. He defended the deity of Christ, and he also expelled Gnostic Gospels. Huh, who is that? Athanasius, maybe? Yeah. Okay. So Athanasius was the bishop of Alexandria around the time when these manuscripts, many of them were written. He was expelling Gnostic texts. He was defending the doctrine of the deity of Christ against Arian against Arianism. And where were many of these Arians coming from? Mm, Byzantium. Interesting. So that theory does not work. There were Arians in Byzantium. There were Arians in Egypt. There were heretics in Byzantium. There was heretics in Egypt. Do not forget that early on in the stage, when you look at Mark, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, when Peter was killed, where did he go to be a bishop? Alexandria, Egypt? Yeah. So you have Mark, a writer of one of our New Testament books, became the first bishop in Alexandria. You have years later, a man by the name of Athanasius, who's continually enforcing the purity of the doctrines of Christ and its text in his area and region of influence. That is a horrible argument. It is unhistorical. It cannot be defended. It is merely, I need to be mad at these texts because they're different and they don't have verses I want in the Bible. And therefore somebody maliciously removed them. Bro, that is uh, the situation. That is incredible. Um, and, and And I'm glad to hear you say some of those things. I hadn't made the connections with Athanasius that you make and and that, that really kind of, I think, ties it all together. You know, it's all right there in that same time frame. It's all in that same era. And then one of the greatest defenders of the deity of Christ, um, Athanasius, shows up and he's in, you know, Alexandria. Um, yeah, that's 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 incredible. Um, right, one, the deity of Christ against heretics in Byzantium. And yeah. The, and <laughs> Byzantium. Exactly. All right. One one final question that I'm going to let you go because I know you've got other things to take care of. Um, but I get this question some somewhat regularly um with folks asking me hey i'm maybe i've just recently come to christ i've recently come to faith and i'm looking to purchase a new bible uh what do you recommend so if if you were to be asked that question what would you recommend for somebody who says hey i'm i'm a beginner's beginner i'm looking for a bible go oh man this is the hardest question i get because it really it really depends on a person's position Mm-hmm. My goal is not necessarily to make people change or ruin their faith in the scripture or something like that. 
if somebody is dogmatic and adamant that they are going to use the TR and the TR only, and that is their position, mm-hmm. I would highly recommend if they're okay with modern vernacular to use the New King James. New King James is a fine translation. Um, it also has textual notes in the footnotes where the manuscripts do differ in the critical text uh, as well as the majority. It also gives you footnotes in the Old Testament where the Syriac as well as the Septuagint and, and other mm-hmm. texts of the ancient, it, the Aramaic, it gives you different readings. Right. So if you're TR and you're dead set on using it only, and you're okay with the modern translation, use the New King James. Sure. Um, if you're adamant that you have to use a ancient English, Elizabethan English, 1769 Blaney edition of the King James. First of all, stop saying you use 1611. You don't use 1611. <laughs> you probably can't read a 1611. Right. I've tried. It's impossible. What's that? <laughs> I said I've tried before. I just can't it's, do it. It's 1769. That's what you're using. Right. Use it, read it, and do the best you can with it. And rightly divide the word of God in there. God mm-hmm. has used the King James Version for many, many years. I love sure. the King James Version. When I quote scripture today from memory, it's out of the King James. That's what I grew up on. I still Same. quote from the King James. King James is a tremendous translation. God has used it for many, many years. I believe it's time to update the English. There are, Mark Ward has done numerous videos, numerous writings on why we should do that. We don't have time to go through all of them. Sure. It needs to be updated. It, it needs to be updated very badly. Right. Um, and when you're talking about a person who may be a majority text position, which I held for about a year when I left the TR just because it was safer. Um, but when, if you're a majority text position, you like that text position more, which is a Byzantine priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a collection of the number. Uh, Maurice Robinson, who is a phenomenal scholar, mm-hmm. has written extensively on that. Him and Pierpont's text in 1995 did an edition together. Um, for, he was at Southeastern, I believe, for years. I believe he's retired now. But a tremendous saint of God and a tremendous scholar. But he uh, did the majority text position. If you're going to use that, use the New King James because it's the only translation that has majority text readings in the footnotes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested in what I believe to be the best representation of the New Testament from its earliest stage and form, it would be something translated off of a, a critical edition, which is almost all modern translations. Okay. If you're looking for something to be extremely literal and you, you just want it literal, you don't want it, you know, smoothed out and cleaned up for you. You want it straight to the point. Uh, the new American standard is a tremendous translation. Um, they just released the 2020 edition of the new American standard. It's getting a lot of criticism for general gender neutrality issues. Really? I'm going to be friends with the executive editor of the new American standard, Don Wilkins. Uh, in fact, uh, he and I talk all the time. I send feedback. He actually let City Light Asheville uh, go through a PDF form of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Jonah before its release. That's awesome. Uh, currently, we're using it. Uh, and when we find heresy in it, we'll throw it out. But at this point, <laughs> we're, we're using it. Um, there's a lot of ESV lovers out there, mm-hmm. especially in the reform crowd. Very readable. Uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. The more I study the ESV, the less I like it. Um, but that, that's fine. All the reform people can don't throw anything. <laughs> you better look out. They're going to get you. The more I study the ESV in the old Testament, I really think it's 
it's not that it's not that great in my opinion in places but i'm not going they had tremendous scholars translating on that committee so great to them sure. uh, the csb has become a very desirable translation for readability mm-hmm. um, i like the csb it's an updated version of the holman right uh, which sounded so southern baptist because it was published by southern baptist but the csb is actually pretty legit i hear a lot of good about it but it's very readable so you gotta understand are, are you going for readability or are you going for accuracy because sometimes mm-hmm. translations want to change it into a more readable state and in doing that you lose some of the main purposes of the uh, of the passage because you're trying to make it sound smooth and they do yeah. a great job of that the niv um it is the number one seller i mean it's it's been up there for years uh i'm not a fan but honestly if somebody if you got a 12 year old Mm-hmm. And they just need something that's simple, basic, and right to the point. Um, I have no problem, you know, recommending an NIV for somebody. I'm not a big fan of the loose translations. These mm-hmm. whole dynamic, the New Living Translation, the Good News, and the Message Bible. My goodness, um, <laughs> just not a fan. I, yeah. I'm not a fan of those. I know that there's a place for them. I know that people get devotional reads out of the New Living Translation. But they're really not translations; they're paraphrases. Right, right. Um, and, and the the uh, the passion translation. The passion, yeah. That's <laughs> oh mercy. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there's so many out there that the the, the English speaking people have a wealth of information mm-hmm. in front of them in the English translations. We right. have, we're spoiled. We don't need any more. We need to stop. We need. To and stop I, I think that's a, a problem that I'm starting to see as well. Is that the problem isn't that we don't have a good Bible. The problem is that we have too many good Bibles, you know, and um, which when meanwhile, I think it's Craig Rochelle and his group, they're trying to get the Bible translated into um, every language by 2025 or 27 or something like that. Um, it, it's, it's shocking how many um, languages are still lacking any translation of the Bible at all. And meanwhile, people like us, English speakers, we have multitudes of translations. I would venture to say, You've probably got in the neighborhood 10, 20, 30 Bibles in your house right now. I know I do, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. And and we have this tendency to to want to pit translations against one another. And honestly, <clears throat> I mean, I know there's there's much to be said about the scholarly element of it, but I don't think God's honored in that. I think we we do a disservice to his word when we want to make we want to pit the word of God against the word of God. That that's bizarre to me. And I really well, and honestly, there, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. So the, goal, the goal is, is to, if you have multiple translations, to read them and look mm-hmm. at the differences in times. Absolutely. But the reason there's so many in English is money. Sure. Uh, that's just a fact. Um, everybody wants their own publishing house and they want mm-hmm. to produce their own translations. And it's all about money. I think we need to stop. I think that what we have is sufficient and just continue to update it. Uh, as it's needed to be updated, the English language changes, or there's really good breakthroughs in textual criticism. That's when we need to make the adjustments. I, I think we need to stop with translations, take that money, pour it into ancient, uh, or to pour it into other translations in different parts of the world that mm-hmm. do not have a translation, like you're talking about. We need to get it. We need to put our resources there. Absolutely. English is fine. We're fine. We don't need any more translations. Stop. Absolutely. Uh, yes. So I don't really recommend one translation. I, depending on your background, your education, mm-hmm. 
uh, your text position. The thing is, is it doesn't matter what translation you're reading. You're going to get mm-hmm. the trueness of God and the nature of God and the nature of Christ, his teachings, his message. You're going to get it. Mm-hmm. You're going to get God's word. When, when I hold an ESV, I can hold it up and say, this is the word of God. Mm-hmm. When I hold up the King James, I can hold up and say, this is the word of God. I know sure. my friends in the King James crowd have every criticism and they roll their eyes when you say that. Right. You're holding the word of God as much as a Hebrew person was holding the Old Testament Torah in Hebrew. And the guy in the LXX that has difference in the Septuagint held right. it as the word of God. And the apostles quoted from it as yeah. the word of God. It was a translation. Sure. It is the word of God. The ESV is the word of God. Uh, the the NASB is the word of God. The NIV is the word of God. They're all mm-hmm. God's word. So yeah. Stop debating about it and read them and study it and live by it. Totally agree. Well, brother, I, I appreciate you taking this time tonight. I know that you've got other things on your agenda to take care of, but uh, man, this has been great. And I, I feel informed. I feel refreshed. And um, I look forward to sharing this with, with my audience, man. God bless you. Appreciate you coming on here tonight and, and God bless you going forward and your work you're doing out there in uh, Asheville. So uh, yeah, man, I appreciate you, brother. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me on. All right. Hey, have a good one. I'll talk to you later. God bless you. Thank you.